Chapter 7. Refusing to let these cloudy qualms overmaster me, I recalled Noise's instructions and pushed open the six-paneled, brass-latched white door on my left. The room beyond was darkened, as I had known before, and as I entered it, I noticed the queer odor was stronger there. There, likewise, appeared to be some faint, half-imaginary rhythm or vibration in the air. For a moment, the closed blinds allowed me to see very little, but then a kind of apologetic hacking or whispering sound drew my attention to a great easy chair in the further, darker corner of the room. Within its shadowy depths, I found the white blur of a man's face and hands, and in a moment, I crossed to greet the figure who tried to speak. Dim through the light was, I perceived that this was indeed my host. I had studied the Kodak picture repeatedly, and there's no mistake about this firm, weather-beaten face and cropped, grizzled beard. But as I looked again, my recognition was mixed with sadness and anxiety, for certainly this face was of a very sick man. I felt that there must be something more than asthma behind that strained, rigid, immobile expression, an unwinking, glassy stare. I realized how terribly the strain of his frightful experiences must have told on him. Was it not enough to break any human being, even a younger man than this intrepid Dwelver, into the forbidden? The strange and sudden relief I feared had come too late to save him from something like a general breakdown. There was a touch of the pitiful in the limp, lifeless way. His lean hands rested in his lap. He had on a loose dressing gown and was swathed from head and high around the neck with a vivid yellow scarf or hood. Then I saw he was trying to talk in the same hacking whisper that which he had greeted me. It was a hard whisper to catch at first, since the gray mustache concealed all movements of the lips, and something in its timbre disturbed me greatly. But by concentrating my attention, I could soon make out its portent surprisingly well. The accent was by no means a rustic one, and the language was, was even more polished than correspondence had led me to expect. Mr. Wilmoth, I presume? You must pardon me for not rising. I am quite ill, as Mr. Noyes must have told you, but I could not resist having you come just the same. You know that I wrote in my last letter, there's so much to tell you tomorrow, when I shall feel better. I cannot tell you how glad I am to see you in person after our many letters. You have the file with you, of course, and the Kodak prints and record. Noise put your valets in the hall. I suppose you saw it. For tonight, I fear you must wait on yourself to a great extent. Your room is upstairs, the one over this. You'll see the bathroom door open at the head of the staircase. There's a mill spread for you in the dining room, right through this door on your right, which you can take whenever you feel like. I'll be a better host tomorrow, but for now, Weakness leaves me helpless. Make yourself at home. You may take out the letters and pictures and records and put them on the table over here before you go upstairs with your bag. It is here that we shall discuss them. 
You can see my phonograph at that corner stand. No thanks, there is nothing you can do for me. I know these spells of old. Just come back for a little quiet visiting for the night, and go to bed when you please. I'll rest right here, perhaps sleep here all night as I often do. In the morning, I'll be far better to go into the thing you must go into. You realize, of course, the utterly stupendous nature of the matter before us. To us, only a few men on this earth, there will be opened up gulfs of time and space, and of knowledge beyond anything within the concepts of human science and philosophy. Do you know that Einstein is wrong, and certain forces can move with velocity greater than that of light? With proper aid, I expect to go backwards and forwards in time and actually see and feel the earth of remote past and future epochs. You cannot imagine the degree to which those beings had carried science. There is nothing they can't do with the mind and body of living organisms. I expect to visit other planets and even other stars and galaxies. The first trip will be to Yogoth, the nearest world fully peopled with beings. It is a strange dark orb at the very rim of our solar system, unknown and unearthly astronomers as yet, but I must have written to you about this, or at the proper time, you know, the beings will, will direct thought currents towards us and cause it to be discovered, or perhaps let one of their human allies Give the scientists a hint. There are mighty series on your goth. Great tiers of terrace towers built on black stone, like the specimen I tried to send you. That came from your goth. The sun shines there, it's no brighter than a star. But the beings need no light. They have other subtler senses, and put to no words their great houses and temples. Light even seems to hurt and hamper, and confuses them, for it does not exist at all, in the black cosmos outside, time and space, where they come from originally. To visit Yogoth would drive any weak-willed man mad, yet I am going there. The black rivers of pitch that flow under those mysterious cyclopean bridges, things built by some other race extinct and forgotten. Before the beings came, Yogoth, from the ultimate void, ought be enough to make any man a Dante or a Poe, if he can keep saying long enough to tell what he had seen. But remember that world of fungi gardens and windowless cities isn't really terrible. It was only to us that it would seem so. Probably this world seemed just as terrible to the beings when they first explored it in the primal age. You know, they were here long before the fabulous epoch of Cthulhu was over. And remember all about the sunken relay. When it was above the waters, they had been inside the earth too. There are openings which human beings know nothing of. Some of them in these very Vermont hills, in great worlds of unknown life down there. Blue Litten Kayan Yan Red Litten Yoth, Black Lightless Nakai. It's from Nakai that the frightful Seth Gogoth came. 
you know, the amorphous toad-like god mentioned in the Totic manuscripts, and the Necronomicon in the Camarion myth cycle preserved by the Atlantean high priestess Karl Koshtan. But we will talk about all this later. Must be four or five o'clock this time. Better bring the stuff from your bag and take a bite and come back for a comfortable chat. Very slowly, I turned and began to obey my host, fetching my valise, extracting and depositing those desired articles, and finally ascending to the room designated as mine. With the memory of that roach-dyed paw print fresh in my mind, Akeley's whispered paragraphs had affected me queerly. In the hints of familiarity with this unknown world of fungus life, forbidden Yogoth made my flesh creep more and more than I cared to own. I was tremendously sorry about Akeley's illness, but had to confess that his hoarse whisper had a hateful as well as pitiful quality. If only he wouldn't gloat so much about Yogoth and its black secrets. My room proved a very pleasant and well-furnished one, devoid alike of musty odor and, and disturbing sense of vibration. And after leaving my valise there, I sent it again to greet Akeley and take the lunch she had set out for me. The dining room was just beyond the study, and I saw a kitchenelle extended much further in the same distance. On the dining table, a ample array of sandwiches, cakes, and cheeses raided me. A thermos bottle beside a cup and a saucer testified to be hot coffee had not been forgotten. After a real relished meal, I poured myself a liberal cup of coffee, but found that a culinary standard had suffered a lapse in this one detail. The first spoonful revealed a faintly unpleasant acrid taste, so that it did not take more. Throughout the lunch, I thought of Akeley sitting silently in the great chair in the darkened next room. Once I went in to see him to share the repast, but he whispered that he could eat nothing as of yet. Later on, just before he slept, he would take some molten milk. All he ought to have that day. After lunch, I insisted on clearing the dishes away and washing them in the kitchen sink, incidentally emptying the coffee, which I had not been able to appreciate. Then returning to the darkened study, I threw up a chair near my host's corner and prepared for such conversation as he might feel inclined to conduct. The letters, the pictures, the was still on the large center table, but for the nonce, we did not have to draw upon them. Before long, I've forgotten the bizarre odor and curious suggestions of vibration. I have said that there were things in some of Akeley's letters, especially the second, most voluminous one, which I would not dare quote or even form into words on paper. This hesitancy applies with all still greater forces to the things I have heard whispered that evening in the darkened room along the lonely haunted hills. Of the extent of the cosmic war unfolded by that raucous voice, I cannot even hint. He had known hideous things before, but what he had learned since making his pact with the outside things was almost too much for sanity to beat. I absolutely refuse to believe what he had implied about the construction of ultimate infinity. 
the juxtaposition of dimensions and the fearful position of our known cosmos, of space and time, and the unending chain of linked cosmos atoms which make up the immediate supercosmos of curves, angles, and material, and the semi-material electronic organization. Never was a sane man more dangerously close to the arcana of basic entity. Was never an organic brain nearer to utter annihilation in the chaos that transcends form and force and symmetry. I learned whence Cthulhu first came and why half the great temporary stats of history had flared forth. I guess from hence made even my informant pause timidly. The secrets behind the Magellic Cloud and the globular nebulae and the black truth veiled by the immoral allegory of Tau. The nature of the dolls were plainly revealed and I was told the essence, though not of the source, of the hounds of Tendalos and the legend of Yig, father of serpents, remain figurative no longer. I started with loathing when told of the monstrous nuclear chaos beyond angled space, which the Necronomicon had mercifully cloaked under the name as Azathoth. It was so shocking to have the foulest nightmares of secret myths cleared up in concrete terms whose stark, morbid hatefulness extended to the boldest hints of ancient and medieval mystics. Incluctably, I was led to believe that the first whispers of these accursed tales must have had discourse with Achilles' outer ones, and perhaps had visited outer cosmic realms as Akeley now purported visiting them. I was told of the Black Stone and what it implied, and was glad that it had not reached me. My guesses about these hieroglyphics had been all too correct, and Akeley now seemed reconciled with the fiendish system he had stumbled upon, reconciled and eager to probe further into the monstrous abyss. I wondered what beings he had talked with since his letter to me. Rather, many of them had been as human as the first emissary he had mentioned. The tension in my head grew insufferable, and I built up all sorts of wild theories about the queer, persistent odor and those insidious hints of vibrations in the darkened room. For the first time, one of the inert, wasted hands raised itself and pointed stiffly to a high shelf on the further side of the room. There, in a neat row, stood more than a dozen cylinders of metal I've never seen before. The cylinder is about a foot high and somewhat less in diameter, with three curious sockets set in a isosceles triangle over the front convex surface of each. One of them was linked at two of the sockets with a pair of singular-looking machines that stood in the background of their portents. I did not need to be told, and I shivered with ague when I saw the hand point to a nearer corner where some intricate instruments with attached cords and plugs, several of them much like the two devices on the shelf behind the cylinders, was huddled together. 
There are four kinds of instruments here, Ormoth whispered the voice. Four kinds, three faculties each, makes twelve in all. You see, there are four different sorts of beings presented in the cylinders there. Three humans, six fungoids, who can't navigate space corporally. Two beings from Neptune. God, if you can see the body this type had on its own planet. And the rest of the entities from the central caverns of a especially interesting dark star beyond the galaxy. In the principal outpost outside Round Hill, you'll now and then find more cylinders and machines. Cylinders of extra cosmic brains and with different senses from any we know, allies and explorers from the outermost outside, and special machines for giving expression in various ways suited once to them to the, the comprehensions of different types of listeners round hill like the other being main outpost all throughout various universes. It's a very cosmopolitan place. Of course, only the more common types have been lent to me for experiment. Here, take the three machines I pointed out and set them on the table. The tall one with the two glass lenses in front, then the box with the vacuum tubes and, and sounding board. And the label B-67 pasted on it. Just stand in that Windsor chair to reach the shelf. Heavy? Never mind. Be sure of the number B-67. Don't bother the fresh shiny tube joined to the two testing instruments. The one with my name on it. Set B-67 on the table near where you have put the machines and see that the dial switch on all three machines is jammed over to the extreme left. Now connect the cord of the lens machine with the upper socket on the cylinders there. Join the tubes machine to the lower left socket in the disc apparatus to the outer socket. Now move all the dials in the machine to the extreme right. First the lens one, then the disc one, then the tube one. That's right. Might I as well tell you that this is a human being, just like any of us. I'll give you a taste of some more of the others tomorrow. To this day, I do not know why I obeyed those whispers so slavishly, or why I thought Akeley was mad or sane. After what had gone on, I ought to have been prepared for anything. But this mechanized memory seemed so like the typical vagaries of crazed inventors and scientists that it struck a chord of doubt, which even the preceding discourse had not excited. What the whisperer implied was beyond all human belief. Yet, were not those other things still further beyond, less preposterous, only because of their remoteness? from the tangibility of concrete proof. As my mind reeled amidst this chaos, I became conscious of a mixed grating and whirring from all three of the machines lately linked 
to the cylinders, a grating and roaring, which soon subsided into virtual noiselessness. What was about to happen? Was I to hear a voice? If so, what proof would I have that it was not some cleverly concocted radio device, talked into by a concealed but closely watching speaker? Even now, I am unwilling to swear just what I heard, or a phenomenon really took place before me. But something certainly seemed to take place. To be brief and plain, the machine with the tubes and sounding box began to speak with a point in intelligence which left no doubt that the speaker was actually present and observing us. The voice was very loud and metallic, lifeless, and plainly mechanized as every detail as its of its production. It was incapable of inflection or expressionless, but scraped and rattled with the deadly precision and deliberateness. Mr. Marth, I hope I do not startle you. I am a human being like yourself. Though my body is now resting safely under proper vitalizing treatment inside Round Hill, about a mile and a half east from here, I myself am here with you. My brain is in the cylinder, you see, and I see, hear, and speak through those electronic vibrators. In a week, I am going across the void as I have been many times before and I expect to have the pleasure of Mr. Akeley's company. I wish I might have yours as well, for I know you by sight and reputation, and I kept close tracks of your correspondence with our friends. I am, of course, one of the men who had become allied with the outside thing visiting our planet. I met them at first in the Himalayas and helped them in various ways. In return, they had given me experiences such as few men have ever had. Do you realize what it means when I say I have been on 37 different celestial bodies, planets, dark stars, and less definable objects, including eight outside of our galaxy and two outside the curved cosmos of space and time? All of this has not harmed me in the least. My brain has been removed from my body by fission so adroit that it would be crude to call the operation surgery. The visiting beings have methods of making these extractions easy, almost normal. The one body's never ages when the brain is out of it. The brain, I may add, is virtually immortal with its mechanical faculties and limited nourishment supplied by occasional changes of preserving fluid. Altogether, I hope most heartily that you decide to come with Mr. Akeley and me. The visitors are eager to know men of knowledge like yourself and to shew them the great abysses that most of us had to dream about in fanciful ignorance. It may seem strange at first to meet them, but I know you will be above, minding that I think Mr. Noise will go along to the man who doubtlessly brought you up here in his car. He has been one of us for years. I suppose you recognize his voice on one of those records Mr. Akeley sent you. At my violent start, the speaker paused a moment for 
concluding. So, Mr. Wilmar, I will leave the matter to you, merely adding that a man with your love of strangeness and folklore ought never to miss a chance like this. There's nothing to fear. All transitions are painless, and there's much to enjoy in a wholly mechanized state of sensation. When the electrodes are disconnected, one merely drops off into a sleep of especially vivid and fantastic dreams. And now, if you don't mind, we must adjourn our session until tomorrow. Good night. Just turn all the switches back to the left. Never mind the exact order. Though you might want to let the lenses of the machine be last. Good night, Mr. Akeley. Treat our guest well. Ready now with those switches? That was all. I obeyed mechanically and shut off all three switches. Though dazed with doubts of everything, my head was still reeling as I heard Akeley's whispering voice telling me that I might leave all the apparatuses on the table just as it was. He did not essay any comments on what had happened, but indeed, no comment could have conveyed much to my burdened faculties. I heard him telling me I could take the lamp to my room and deduce that he wished to rest alone in the dark. It was surely time he rested, for his discourse of the afternoon and evening had been much to exhaust even a vigorous man. Still dazed, I bade my host good night and went upstairs with the lamp, although I had an excellent pocket flashlight with me. I was glad to be out of that downstairs study with the queer odor and vague suggestions of vibration, yet could not, of course, escape the hideous sense of dread and peril and cosmic abnormality as I thought of the place I was in and the forces I was meeting. The wild, lonely region, the black, mysterious, forested slope towering so close behind the house, the footprints in the road, and the sick, motionless whisperer in the dark, the hellish cylinders in the machine, and above all, the invitation to the strange surgery and stranger voyaging, these things so new in such sudden succession, rushed in on me with a cumulative force which sapped my will and almost undermined my physical strength. To discover that my guide noise was a human collaborant with the monstrous bygone sabbat ritual on the phonograph record was a particular shock, though I had previously sensed a dim, repellent familiarity with his voice. Another special shock came from my own attitude towards my host whenever I paused to analyze it. For as much as I had instinctively liked Gakely, as revealed in his correspondence, I find that he fills me with a distinct repulsion. His illness might have excited my pity, but instead it gave me a kind of shudder. He was so rigid and inert and corpse-like, and that incessant whispering was so hateful and inhuman. It occurred to me that the whispering was different from anything of the kind I had ever heard. Despite the curious motionlessness of the speaker's mustache, screen lips, it had a latent strength and carrying power remarkable for the wheezing of an asthmatic. 
I had been able to understand the speaker when fully across the room, and once or twice it seemed to me that the faint but particular sound represented not so much. To me, that of the faint but protuberant sound manifested not so much weakness as deliberate repression. For what reason, I cannot guess. From the first, I felt a disturbing quality in their timbre. But now, when I tired to weigh the manner, I thought I could trace this impression to a kind of subconscious familiarity like that which made Noise's voice so hastily ominous. But when or where I had encountered the thing is hinted at even more than I could tell. One thing was certain. I could not spend another night here. My scientific zeal had vanished amidst fear and loathing. I felt nothing now but a wish to escape from this net of morbidity and unnatural revelation. When I knew enough that it must indeed be true that cosmic linkages do exist, but such things are surely not meant for normal human beings to meddle with. Blasphemous influences seem to surround me and press chokingly upon my senses. Sleep, I decided, would be out of the question. So I extinguished the lamp and threw myself onto the bed fully dressed. No doubt it was absurd, but I kept ready for some unknown emergency. Ripping in my right hand the revolver, which I had brought along, holding the pocket flashlight in my left hand. Not a sound came from below, and I could imagine how my host was sitting there with a cavernous stiffness in the dark. Somewhere I heard a clock ticking, and vaguely grateful for the normality of the noise. It reminded me, though, of another thing about the region which disturbed me, the total absence of animal life. There was certainly no farm beast about. Now I realize that the accustomed night noises of the wild living things were absent, except for the sinister trickle of a distant, unseen water, which stillness was anomalous, interplanetary, and I thought what star-spawned and intangible blight might be hanging over the region. I recall from the old legends that the dogs and the other beasts hated the outer ones, and the thought of what those tracks in the road might mean. Chapter 8 Do not ask me how long my unexpected lapse into slumber lasted, or how much of what ensued was sheer dream. If I could tell you that I awakened at a certain time, and heard and saw certain things, you would merely answer that I did not wake then and that everything was a dream, until the moment I rushed out of the house, stumbled upon the shed where I had seen the old Ford, and seized that ancient vehicle for a mad aimless race over the haunted hills which at last landed me, after hours of jolting and winding through the forest-threatened labyrinths in a village which turned out to be Townshend. You will also, of course, discount everything else in my report and declare that all the pictures, record sound, cylinder, and machine sounds, and kindred evidences were bits of pure deception practiced on me by the missing Henry Akeley 
and you will even hint that he conspired with other Citrix to carry out a silly elaborate hoax. That he had the express shipment removed at Keen, and he had Noise make that terrifying wax cylinder. It is odd, though, that Noise had not even yet been identified. That he was unknown at any of the villages near Akeley's place. Though, he must have been frequently in the region. I wish I had stopped to memorize the license number of his car. Or perhaps it is better, after all, I did not. For I, despite all you can say, and despite all I sometimes try to say to myself, know that loathsome outside influences must be lurking there in the half-known hills, and that those influences have spies and emissaries in the worlds of men. To keep as far as possible from such influences and such emissaries is all I ask of a life. When my frantic story sent a sheriff's posse out to the farmhouse, Akeley was gone without leaving a trace. His loose dressing gown, yellow scarf, and foot bandages lie on the study floor near his corner easy chair, but it could not be decided whether any of his other apparel had vanished with him. The dogs and livestock were indeed missing, and there were some curious bullet holes, both on the house exterior and some of the walls within. But beyond this, nothing unusual could be detected. No cylinders or machines, none of the evidences I brought in my fillets, no queer odor or vibration sense, no footprint in the roads, and none of the problematic things I glimpsed at the very last. I stayed in Rattleboro after my escape, making inquiries among people of every kind who had known Akeley, and the results convinced me that the matter is no figment of dream or delusion. Akeley's queer purchases of dogs and ammunitions and chemicals and the cutting of his telephone wires were manners of record. While all who knew him, including his son in California, conceded his occasional remarks on strange studies of a had certain consistencies, conceded that his occasional remarks on strange studies had a certain consistency. Solid citizens believe he was mad and unhesitatingly pronounce all reported evidence mere hoax devised with insane cunning and perhaps abetted by eccentric associates. But the lowlier country folk sustained his statements in every detail. He shooed some of these rustics, his photographs in Blackstone, and played the hideous record for them, and they all said the footprints and buzzings were like those described in each in ancestral legends. But I still have to tell the ending of that terrible night in the farmhouse. As I have said, as I have said, I did finally drop into a troubled doze, a doze filled with bits of dream which involved monstrous landscape glimpses. Just what awakened me, I cannot yet say. But that I did indeed wake up at this given point, I feel certain. At first confused impression was of stealthily creaking floorboards in the hall outside my door, and a clumsy, muffled fumbling at the latch. This, however, ceased almost at once, so that my really clear impressions begins with the voices heard 
from the study below. There seemed to be several speakers, and I judged that they were conversationally engaged. By the time I listened a few seconds, I was broad awake, for the nature of the voices was such to make all thought of sleep ridiculous. The tones were curiously varied, and no one who had listened to that accursed phonograph would harbor any doubts of the nature of at least two of them. Hideous though the idea, I knew that I was under the same roof with nameless things from abysmal space. For those two voices were unmistakably the blasphemous buzzings which the outside beings used in their communication with men. The two were individually different, different in pitch, accent, and tempo, but they were both the same damnable general kind. A third voice was indubitably that of mechanical utterance machine connected to one of the detached brains in the cylinder. There was as little doubt of that as about the buzzings, for a loud, mechanical, lifeless voice of the previous evening, its inflectionless, expressionless, scraping and rattling, impersonal precision and deliberation, that had been utterly unforgivable. For a time, I did not pause to question whether the intelligence behind that scraping was the identical one which had formerly talked to me. But surely after I reflected that any brain would emit vocal sounds of the same quality if linked to the same mechanical speech producer. The only possible difference being in language, rhythm, speed, and pronunciation. To complete the eldritch colloquy, there was two actual human voices. One crude speech of an unknown and evidently rustic man and the other suave Bostonian tones of my erstwhile guide, Noise. As I tried to catch the words, which the stoutly fashioned floor so bafflingly intercepted, I was also conscious of a great deal of stirring and scratching and shuffling in the room below, so that I could not escape the impression that it was full of living beings, many more than the few whose speech I could single out. The exact nature of this stirring is extremely hard to describe, for very few good bases of comparison exist. Objects seem now and then to move across the room like conscious entities, the sound of their footfalls having something about it like a loose, hard surface clattering, as of contact of ill-coordinated surfaces of horns or hard rubber. It was to use more concrete, but less accurate comparison, as if people with loose, splintery wooden shoes were scrambling and rattling about on the hard, polished board floor of a nature and appearance of those who responsible for the sounds. I could not speculate. Before long, I saw that it would be impossible to distinguish any connected discourse, isolated words, including the names of Akeley and myself, now and then floated up, especially when uttered by the mechanical speech producer. But their true significance was lost for want of continuous context. Today I refuse to form any definite deduction from them, and even their frightful effect on me was one of suggestion rather than revelation. A terrible and abnormal conclave. I 
feel certain was assembled below me, but for what shocking deliberations I could not tell. It was curious how this unquestioned sense of the maligned and blasphemous pervaded me despite Akeley's assurance of the outsider's friendliness. With patient listening, I began to distinguish clearly between the voices, even though I could not grasp much of any of the voices said. I seemed to catch certain typical emotions behind some of the speakers. One of the buzzing voices, for example, held an unmistakable note of authority, whilst the mechanical voice, notwithstanding its artificial loudness and irregularity, seemed to be in a position of subordination and pleading. Noise tones exuded a conciliary atmosphere. The others, I could make no attempt to interpret. I could not hear the familiar whisper of Akeley, but knew well that such a sound would never penetrate the solid flooring of my room. I will try to set down some of the disjointed words and other sounds I caught, labeling the speakers of the words best I know, and from the speech machines I first picked up a few recognizable phrases. Brought it upon myself. Sent back the letters and the record. End on it. Taken in. Seeing and hearing. Damn you. Impersonal force, after all. Fresh, shiny, cylinder. Great God. Time we stop. Small and human. Akeley. Brain. Saying. Malathotep. Wilmarth. Records and letters. Cheap imposture. Nagal Kotsun, harmless piece, couple of weeks, theatrical, told you that before. No reason, original plan, noise can watch, round hill, fresh cylinder, noises car, well, all ears down here, rest, peace. Several voices at once, an indistinguishable speech. Many footprints, including the particular loose stirring or clattering. A curious sort of flapping sounds. The sound of an automobile starting and receding. Silence. That is the substance of what my ears brought me as I lay rigid upon the strange upstairs bed that haunted in the haunted farmhouse among the demonic hills. Lie there, fully dressed, with a revolver clenched in my right hand and a pocket flashlight gripped in my left. I became, as I had said, broad awake, but in a kind of obscure paralysis, nevertheless kept me inert long after the last echoes of the sounds that died away. I heard the wood, deliberate ticking of the ancient kinetic clock somewhere far below, at last made out the irregular snoring of a sleeper. Akeley must have dozed off after the strange session, and I could well believe that he needed to do so. Just what to think, or what to do, was more than I could decide. After all, what I had heard beyond things which previous information might have led me to expect. Had not I known the nameless outsiders were freely admitted to the farmhouse, no doubt Akeley would have been surprised by an unexpected visit from them. Yet something in the fragmentary discourse had chilled me, immeasurably, raised the most grotesque and horrible doubts, and made me wish fervently that 
I might wake up and prove everything a dream. I think my subconscious mind must have caught something, which my consciousness had not yet recognized. But what of Akeley? Was he not my friend? And would he have not protested if any harm were meant to me? The peaceful snoring below seemed to cast ridicule on my suddenly intensified fears. Was it possible that Akeley had imposed upon and used as a lure to draw me into the hills with the letters and pictures and phonograph record? Did those beings mean to engulf both of us in a common destruction because we had come to know too much? Again, I thought of the abruptness and unnaturalness of the change in the situation which must have occurred between Akeley's penultimate and final letters. Something, my instinct told me, was terribly wrong. All was not as it seemed. The acrid coffee I refused. Had there not been an attempt by some hidden, unknown entity to drug it? I must talk to Akeley at once and restore his sense of proportion. They had hypnotized him with their promise of cosmic revelations. But now he must listen to reason. We must get out of this before it would be too late. If he lacked the willpower to make the break for liberty, I would supply it. Or if I could not persuade him to go, I could at least go myself. But surely he would let me take his Ford and leave it in a garage in Bro- at Battleboro. I had noticed it in the shed, and the door being left unlocked and open now, the perils was deemed to pass, and I believe that there was a good chance of it being ready for instant use. That momentary dislike of Akeley, which I had during and after the evening conversations, was all gone now. He was in a position much like my own. We must stick together. Knowing his indisposed condition, I hated to wake him at this juncture, but I knew that I must. I could not stay in this place until the morning as matters stood. At last, I felt able to act and stretched myself vigorously to regain control of my muscles. Arising with a caution more impulsive than deliberate, I found and donned my hat, took my valets, and started downstairs with the flashlight's aid. In my nervousness, I kept the revolver clutched in my right hand, being able to take care of both valets and flashlight with my left. Why I exerted these precautions, I did not really know, since I was even then on my way to awaken the only other occupants of the house. As I half tiptoed down the creaking stairs to the lower hall, I could hear the sleeper more plainly and noticed that he must be in the room on my left, the living room. I had not entered. On my right was the gaping blackness of the study which I had heard the voices. Pushing open the unlatched door of the living room, I traced a path with the flashlight towards the source of the snoring, and finally turned the beam on the sleeper's face. But in the next second, I hastily turned them away and commenced a cat-like retreat into the hall. My caution this time, springing from reason as well from instinct. For the sleeper on the couch was not Akeley at all, but my corndom guide noise. Just what the real situation was, I could not guess, but the common sense told me that the safest thing was to find as much as possible before arousing anyone. Regaining the hall, I silently closed and latched the living room door after me, thereby lessening the chance of awakening noise. I now cautiously entered the dark study, where 
I expected to find equally, rather asleep or awake, in the great corner chair, which was evidently his favorite resting place. As I advanced, the beam of my flashlight caught the great center table, revealing one of the hellish cylinders with sight and hearing machine attached, and with a speech machine standing close by, ready to be connected at any moment. This, I reflected, must be the encased brain I heard talking during the frightful conference, and for a second I had a perverse impulse to attach the speech machine and see what it would say. It must, I thought, be conscious of my presence even now, since the sight and hearing attachments could not fail to disclose the rays of my flashlight and the faint creaking of the floor beneath my feet. But in the end, I did not dare meddle with the thing. I idly saw that the fresh shiny cylinder with Akeley's name on it which I had noticed on the shelf earlier, in the evening, which my host told me not to bother. Looking back at that moment, I could only regret my timidity and wish I had boldly caused the apparatus to speak. God knows what mysterious and horrible doubts and questions of identity it might have cleared up, but then it may be merciful that I left it alone. From the table, I turned my flashlight to the corner, where I thought Akeley was, but found, to my perplexity, the great easy chair was empty of any human occupants, asleep or awake. From the seat to the floor trailed voluminously the familiar old dressing gown. Near it on the floor laid the yellow scarf and the huge foot bandages that I thought so odd. As I hesitated, driving to conjecture, where Akeley might be, and why he so suddenly discarded his necessary sick room garments. I observed the queer odor and sense of vibration were no longer in the room. What had been their cause, curiously, occurred to me, as I noticed them only in Akeley's vicinity. Then, they must have been stronger where he sat, and wholly absent except in the room, with him, or just outside the doors of that room. I paused, letting the flashlight wander about the dark study, racking my brains for explanations of the turn of affairs had taken. Would to heaven I quickly left the place before allowing that light to rest again on the vacant chair. As it turned out, I could not leave quietly, but a muffled shriek, which must have disturbed, though it did not quite awake the sleeping sentinel across the hall. That shriek and noises still unbroken snore are the last sounds I ever heard in that morbidity-choked farmhouse beneath the black wood crest of a haunted mountain. That focus of trans-cosmic horror amidst the lonely green hills and curse-muttering brooks of a spectral rustic land. It is a wonder that I did not drop flashlights, fillets, and revolver in my wild scramble, but somehow I'd failed to loose any of these. I actually managed to get out of the room and that house without making any further noise, drag myself and my belongings safely into the old Ford in the shed, and set that archaic vehicle into motion towards some unknown point of safety. 
in the black moonless night. The ride that followed was a piece of delirium, out of Poe or Rembrandt or the drawings of Dor. But I finally reached Townshim, and that is all. If my sanity is still unshaken, I am lucky. Sometimes I fear that the years will bring, especially since the new planet Pluto had been curiously discovered. As I implied, I left my flashlight, returned to the vacant easy chair after its circuit of the room, then noticing for the first time the presence of certain objects in the seat, made inconspicuous by the adjacent loose folds of the empty dressing gown. These objects, three in number, were which the investigators did not find when they came later on. As I said on the outset, there's nothing of actual visual horror about them. The trouble was that they led one to infer, even now. I have moments of my half-doubts, moments which I half-expect the skepticism of those who attribute my whole experience to dream, nerves, and delusion. The three things were damnably clever constructions of their kind, and were furnished with ingenious metallic clamps to attach them to organic developments, which I dare not form any conjecture. I hope, devoutly hope, that they were waxen products of a master artist. Despite what my innermost fears tell me, great God, that whisper in the darkness, with its morbid odor and vibrations, sorcerer, emissary, changeling, outsider, that hideous repressed buzzing, and all the time in that fresh, shiny cylinder on the shelf, poor devil, prodigious surgical, biological, chemical and mechanical skill, for the things on the chair, perfect to the last subtle detail of microscopic semblance for identity were the face and hands of Henry Wentworth Ickley.